Now we're going to start, we're going to turn our attention to the biblical ethic. And uh, I want to begin with uh, this collection of thoughts. All right, here we go. The revelation of God in Scripture does not appear in the same dress as any of the philosophical systems that you've been introduced to in other courses here. That's especially important to recognize when we contrast the ethical system of somebody like Plato and Aristotle with the foundation of the Christian ethical system that we find in Scripture. The biblical ethic does not come to us in any kind of systematic philosophical package. That's the point I want to make. The biblical ethic does not come wrapped up in a systematic philosophical package. You have to do some work in order to nail down the content of the biblical ethic. But the apparent simplicity of the biblical ethic is deceptive. What I'm saying is, the biblical ethic sometimes looks very simple. It sometimes looks very disorganized, very unsystematic. But reflective thinking about the Christian ethic will soon bring you to realize that you're dealing with an underlying system, you're dealing with a package a system that is there underneath the surface, and in fact, you can get involved in some very complex issues before you know it. The Christian has a necessary starting point for his moral reflection, and that necessary starting point are the divinely revealed scriptures. But this fact does not mean that the Christian has a sufficient starting point. The divinely revealed truth found in the propositions of Scripture uh, does not give the Christian a ready-made answer to every moral problem. Let me repeat that. The divinely revealed truth found in the propositions of Scripture does not give the Christian a ready-made answer to every moral problem. Rather, these, this revealed truth provides the Christian with a starting point that does not relieve him of the need to think seriously and reflectively about the meaning of the biblical maxims and their application to his situations. Now, the first thing I want to do in introducing you to the biblical ethic is to discuss a very important subject that I usually present under this heading, principles and rules, principles and rules in Christian ethics. Principles and rules in Christian ethics. Now, I'm going to give you how many propositions here? six propositions that will serve to introduce us to this important topic. I have mentioned the apparent simplicity of the New Testament ethic. Now I want you to consider the complexity of the New Testament ethic. 
Number one, what do we make of the fact that a number of New Testament commandments seem tied to specific situations that seem totally inapplicable today? Let me repeat that. What do we make of the fact that a number of New Testament commandments seem tied to specific situations that affect none of us today? For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about women praying with uncovered heads or with hair cut short. Um, in most cases, these are not concerns of Christian communities to which most of us belong today. Well, and yet that is certainly, those are certainly moral instructions that are found in the New Testament. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about eating meat offered to idols. When's the last time you asked your butcher, has this meat been offered as a sacrifice to any pagan god? I don't know what your butcher, where your butcher goes to church. Consequently, what possible help can Christians get from reading these outmoded moral instructions, if that characterization of them happens to be correct? So much of the New Testament seems ethically archaic and obsolete, does it not? Or does it? Well, that's point number one. What do we make of the fact that a number of New Testament commandments seem ethically archaic, ethically obsolete? Point two. A great many of the moral problems that do confront Christians today are not even mentioned in the Bible. A great many of the moral problems that confront contemporary Christians are not even mentioned in the Bible. Now notice the twist here. Many of the issues that are mentioned in the Bible are obsolete, archaic. Many that concern us today are not discussed in the Bible. Where in the Bible, for example, does it say anything about smoking marijuana? Or about birth control, perhaps? Or about AIDS? So, in the first point, some of the New Testament ethic appears to be out of date. In the second point, some of the New Testament ethic appears to be incomplete or irrelevant. All right? Number three. In fact, if the Bible did contain specific moral instruction about many of our contemporary problems, these passages in the Bible would have been unintelligible to Christians who lived in earlier centuries. If the Bible did contain specific moral instruction about many of our contemporary problems, these passages would have been unintelligible. Suppose you're reading in 2 Peter, all right, and Peter says, because the Bible wants to be complete, Peter says, never drive your Mercedes faster than the speed limit of 55 miles an hour. Now, what would, New Testament, what would first century Christians have made of that? What would any Christian prior to 1910 have made of that? So, the first point, much of the New Testament ethic appears ethically archaic. Second point, much of the New Testament ethic appears to be irrelevant or incomplete. Point number three, 
if these gaps in the New Testament ethic had been filled in, much of the New Testament ethic would have been unintelligible. How can a how can a timeless revelation deal with changing moral problems? That's what I want you to see. Point four. In order for the Bible to contain a moral command to cover every possible situation, it would, it would require an expansion of its size to interminable lengths. We... We know the size of the present Bible. Now, just suppose God had decided to give us a book, and suppose he had said, this chapter won't be relevant until the middle of the 20th century, all right? But he wanted to give us a timeless, complete ethical revelation so that people living in the first century could skip over this. They'd say, well, I don't know what marijuana is, and I don't know what X-rated movies are, and I don't know what um, a Mercedes-Benz is. So that God, God revealed all of that to take care of Christians in the future. But if we had a revelation that contained all of the moral instructions we needed, we'd need, a, we'd need a huge computer to carry it with us. It would be ethically impractical to have a divine revelation that covers every specific issue, moral issue that we might encounter. Finally, uh, what do we do with the problem of moral dilemmas? Life is difficult. Many times it's hard to know what our responsibilities in life are, so how do we, how do we avoid the problem of the ethically ambiguous? Now, whether you followed every single point that I've made here, all of this is designed to introduce you to the importance of the distinction between principles and rules. What I'm going to do in the next half hour is give you the equipment that you need to deal with all of these questions that I have just asked. Aren't you glad you came today? What you need to deal with these particular problems, these questions that I've asked, is the distinction between a principle and a rule. I'm going to draw a distinction between a principle and a rule, and I'm going to set up a little chart here. And the chart will deal with the relative advantage and disadvantage, disadvantage of principles and rules. But before I do that, I have to give you a clear idea of what this distinction is. The distinction between a principle and a rule is primarily a distinction of generality. If you have two moral prescriptions, the one that is more closely tied to a specific situation will be the rule. And the one that is more general and covers a broader range of situations will be the principle. Rules are more specific than principles. In fact, let's put that down as the major advantage of any moral rule. It is very specific. It is specific. Uh, it is related to specific situations. Hence, it is much easier to understand 
how the rule applies to this particular situation. The disadvantage to rules, however, is that they tend, they, they suffer from a kind of relativity. A kind of relativism. You see, because the rule is so closely tied to a specific situation, when that situation changes, the rule may no longer apply. So that what was your duty yesterday because you were this person in this situation, that may not be your duty tomorrow because the situation has changed. Now, principles have the advantage of being much more unchanging. In other words, the advantage of a principle corresponds to the disadvantage, the weakness of a rule. Rules are, tend to be relative because they're closely tied to situations. Principles cover a much broader range of possibilities, hence they are less subject to change. But now we come to the corresponding disadvantage of a principle. Principles cover so many options that they tend to suffer from a degree of vagueness, ambiguity. All right? Now, how does this apply to the Bible? In the Bible, we find a large number of rules that God gave to his people to give them guidance in the specific situations in which they found themselves. But they were, in the case of the New Testament, get this, they were first century rules given to first century believers. To the extent that those situations that, have, that, uh, that confronted first century believers changed, the rules would have to change. All right. When we, so, as we look at the moral instructions that are in the Bible, we, we need to ask ourselves, is this a rule or is this a principle? A principle will be more general than a rule. If what we're looking at is a first century rule, then what we will have to do is find its 20th century application. We will have to dig below the rule and find the more general principle behind it. All right, now let me give you an example. In Romans 14, Paul talks about people who eat meat that has been offered to idols. I want to suggest to you that all of this discussion concerns some rules that applied to particular situations. What was the situation? It was a first century situation in which Christians obtained their meat from pagan butchers 
who had gone through some kind of pagan religious ceremony over that meat. Now, there was a big to-do over this in Paul's time. The to-do was so serious that some Christians broke fellowship over this matter. Some Christians, some Christians would say, I can't fellowship with a Christian who is eating meat that has been offered to a pagan god. Obviously, such a Christian is carnal. Obviously, I must separate myself from such a Christian. You know how the, how the language goes. Now, what was Paul's position on this? Paul says, it doesn't affect me at all. Paul says, I can eat meat that has been offered to idols because I know that those pagan gods don't exist. If I'm hungry for a steak, Paul says, do you think I'm going to throw that steak away because I find out my pagan butcher, butcher has offered it to, as a sacrifice to Isis or the Great Mother or to Caesar? And Not at all. I'd say, uh, you know, turn on the barbecue and let's, let's cook the juices, let's cook this well done. But, Paul says, even though eating meat under these conditions will not hurt me, what if there's a weaker brother out there who doesn't understand this situation as well as I do, and what if he is offended? What if he is led to stumble? What if he says, I saw Paul come out of that pagan butcher shop, and I watched Paul eat that meat, I, I, guess, I guess Paul's telling me that it doesn't hurt my Christian testimony at all if I mix up a little Christianity with that pagan religion. Oh, Paul says, now wait a minute. All of a sudden, we're playing a new game here. Game number one, is it all right for Paul to eat that meat? Yeah. Game number two, does Paul want to do anything that is going to cause a weaker brother to stumble? No. So Paul says, if eating meat maketh my brother to offend, I will eat no meat while the world standeth. I won't do anything, no matter how ethically neutral or harmless it is, that will injure a weaker brother or sister. Now here's my distinction. Eating meat offered to idols was a rule applied to a specific situation. Okay? That situation does not exist in our day. Hence, that rule is archaic and obsolete. What we need to do in that situation is look for the more basic principle that lies behind the rule. And that more basic principle is this. Christians should never do anything that would cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. All right, now how does that apply to the 20th century? Well, I'll give you a couple of applications, all right, and there's probably some preaching material here. There probably is. I don't know of any place in the Bible, for example, that says it is a sin for Christians to drink um, alcoholic beverages. 
In fact, uh, you know, uh, Jesus turned water into wine, and that wasn't grape juice, you Baptists out there. He, Jesus turned that water into wine, all right? Paul said to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. And there are lots of Christians who would like the rest of the world to think that they have some stomach ailment that requires them to do that. Now, the simple fact is, if you look at what the New Testament teaching about alcoholic beverages, there's not a thing in the Bible that would preclude any of us from drinking that stuff. But the other principle applies. There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot drink. If There is plenty in the Bible that says you must not drink to excess. You must not drink to the place where it controls you. But who's watching you? Who's observing you? Do you have children in your family? As innocent as your family practice might be, and I'm not, you, you understand, I'm not preaching here. I'm not making, I'm just using this as a contemporary example. I've got kids in, the, in our family. Is it possible that using my Christian liberty in this way might cause damage to some of them? My wife and I can hold our booze or whatever, all right? Will my children be able to exercise the same control that my wife and I have? So the rule, eating meat offered to idols, doesn't apply. The principle does apply. Here's another example. Paul in Corinthians talks about women keeping their heads covered. Now, I will admit that I may be out of step with modern New Testament scholarship on this. I was taught, I've been told, that the reason Paul gave that rule, and that's what it is, I insist, a rule, was because the prostitutes of Corinth identified themselves uh, with their uncovered heads. All right? Now, in a, whether that's right or not, we could, we could take up a different example. But the point is, there is no abiding, timeless law that says to Christian women, you must always keep your heads covered. I would suggest that that was a rule that applied to the Christian women in Corinth because of the moral conditions in, that existed in that society. The principle... The principle from, that we would relate that rule to is this, that Christians ought always to dress in a modest and unassuming and unprovocative way. Uh, that would be the principle. Okay, so let me go back to these, to these questions I gave you. What do we make of the fact that a number of New Testament commandments seem tied to specific situations that seem inapplicable today? Does this not make much of the New Testament ethically obsolete? And my answer now to that question is, no, it doesn't. What we need to realize in the presence of those passages is we must distinguish between the rule, which is obsolete, and the principle, which is timeless. That requires hard thinking. 
That requires reflection about the moral instruction in the New Testament. It's not a simple matter of reading what the New Testament says and then applying it to our situation today. The second question I asked, is it not true that many of the moral problems that confront contemporary Christians are not even mentioned in the Bible? Doesn't that make the biblical ethic irrelevant or incomplete? Well, I say yes to the first question and no to the second. It is true that many of our contemporary moral problems are not specifically addressed in the rules of the New Testament, but they are addressed in the, in the principles of the New Testament. So to the extent that you and I find ourselves in situations where we're wrestling with contemporary moral problems, we must look back to the principles of Scripture and see how they apply, how they relate to the specific situations of today. Then you see this distinction between rules and principles then gets rid of the rest of the problems we looked at. If the Bible did contain specific moral instruction about many of our contemporary problems, these passages would have been unintelligible to Christians of earlier century. That's it. That's why the New Testament does not contain rules for 20th century men and women. It contains principles for 20th century men and women. Otherwise, the Bible would be so bulky, uh, so unintelligible to earlier centuries, and so on. All right, now, with that distinction in mind, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to maintain that the biblical ethic gives us a hierarchy of ascending or descending moral instruction. The biblical ethic gives us a hierarchy of moral instructions which are more or less general, more or less specific, and here's what we find. I would say that the most general of all moral instructions in the New Testament is the duty to love. And the word there, of course, is agape, which is very instructive. It is not sexual love, eros. It is not friendship, philea. It is agape. It is the kind of sacrificial, self-giving love that we find in God's giving of His own Son. Okay, that is the highest, the most general moral principle in Scripture. Then what we get is love to God and love to man. Read Matthew 22. Remember, Jesus is asked, what is the first and the great commandment? And Jesus says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So, starting with the most general of all moral prescriptions, the prescription to love, we then move to, we then start down two tracks, love to God and love to man. And then things, so that's Matthew 22. Then it gets more specific because we then have the first table of the law, and then we have the second table of the law. 
In other words, we can view the first four of the Ten Commandments as an additional specification of how love to God should be manifested. You see, we are not situational ethicists. We are not disciples of Joseph Fletcher. Joseph Fletcher would say, love is all you need. And then there is no further guidance as to how love should be manifested. It's how love should be manifested. You can do anything so long as you think love requires it. Okay. So, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy vain. The name of the Lord thy God in vain. I'll get these things straight yet. And the second table of the, of the Decalogue illustrates that if you love your neighbor, you will not lie, you will not steal, you will not commit adultery, you will not covet, all right? Now, it gets even more specific. What we find then is that the New Testament gives us New Testament principles and rules, New Testament principles and rules, that act as a further specification of the, of the laws that we have in the Decalogue. Because look, thou shalt not kill, and the word there is murder, thou shalt not murder is a rather vague moral prescription. What we need in the moral dilemmas of life is an information about whether this is an instance of murder. For example, is abortion murder? Does that fall under the constraints of that particular commandment? I think it does in most cases. That's what makes me a pro-life advocate, all right? Um, stealing. Now, watch this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred... <laughs> There's a commandment that deals with that as well. <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or, yeah, Jesus refers to... Um, the Decalogue's proscription of murder. And he says, he who is angry with his brother is guilty of violating that commandment. Now what you get there is then a further New Testament What Jesus is doing is saying, if you think that murder is restricted to putting a knife in somebody or cutting off their head or killing them, you're mistaken. If you even intend that kind of harm, you're guilty of violating that law. Similarly, you've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but he who has lust in his heart is guilty of that sin. Okay? So the New Testament then gives us an additional hierarchy of principles and rules which are a further elaboration of the Ten Commandments, which are a further elaboration of Jesus' first and great commandments, which are a further elaboration of the duty to love. 
First of all, we need to explain the difference between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. All right? A necessary condition is one without which something else does not obtain. A necessary, condi is, a necessary condition is one in the absence of which something else is also absent. Such that... Um, uh, 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 sufficient food and water are a necessary condition for human beings continuing to live. You take away the food and the water and life disappears. Okay. A sufficient condition is one in the presence of which something else will be present. So necessary condition, you take it away and you lose something else. Sufficient condition if, you, if, you, if it's present, then something else is present. Now, here's what I mean when I say Scripture is a necessary condition. Without it, we cannot know the will of God. We need the revealed propositional truth of Scripture uh, as a necessary condition for, uh, for knowing God's will. But Scripture is not a sufficient condition because... You can have the Bible and still not be sure what your duty is. That's my point. In many cases, we, it's not simply a matter of reading Scripture and applying it. There has to be some careful, mature, sanctified, Holy Spirit-guided reflection about this. And that relates back to this business between principles and rules. So uh, th I, there isn't anything heretical there. I'm simply saying that the mere access to Scripture by itself doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to know what your duty is in this particular situation. If you're a dispensationalist, or maybe a, some kind of a premillennialist, you're going you're to look cross-eyed at any Old Testament law that isn't repeated in the New Testament. You're just going to say that that applies to Israel. That doesn't apply to the church. That's the way dispensationalists think. That takes care of not only the, the Jewish uh, ceremonial law, that takes care of all of those other cultural laws. That what happens when your neighbor accidentally kills your cow? Well, then you've got to do such and such in the Old Testament, see? Well, a New Testament dispensa a dispensationalist is going to say, that doesn't apply to us. That applied once to a particular, using my language, a dispensationalist would say, that was a rule that covered a specific case for a specific people in a specific cultural situation. It's no longer relevant. Have you ever noticed the differing attitudes that theonomists and dispensationalists take to the Pentateuch? It's very interesting. All Old Testament law is still in effect unless it's been specifically abrogated. That's theonomy. Dispensationalism. No Old Testament law is still in effect unless it has been specifically reinstituted. Maybe I should tell you about different kinds of Reconstructionists. <laughs>
The first school of theonomy is called the Chalcedon Foundation. Chalcedon, this is the, this is the um, home base for Rusus Rushduni. Rushduni is in many ways the father of the whole theonomist movement. Um, he lives in um, Central California now. We, our library, get some of his stuff, the Chalcedon Report and so on. Rush Dooney is probably the most strict, straight-laced of the theonomists. He will not wear certain kinds of clothing because that clothing violates certain Old Testament laws. He will not eat. You don't want to, you don't, never want, you never want to invite Rusus Rush Dooney over to your house for pork chops and sauerkraut. <laughs> He will be offended. All right. Very, very straight-laced sort of a guy. Then there is the Tyler, Texas connection. The Tyler, Texas connection is Gary North and various enterprises that Gary North runs, either out of Fort Worth. He used to have a publishing company in Fort Worth, Texas. He has uh, several enterprises in Tyler, Texas, Gary North is um, Rusus Rushduni's son-in-law, which creates certain problems since they haven't spoken in 15 years. <laughs> they don't get along very well. Uh, Gary North thinks that there is virtue in so alienating and so antagonizing your enemy that he hates your guts. Then there's a third branch of the theonomous movement called American Vision, which is in um, Atlanta, Georgia. This is a little organization run by a guy named Gary DeMar. Very now, Gary DeMar is a very moderate kind of theonomist. Rusus Rushduni, he chews nails for supper. Uh, Gary North spits those nails out. Uh, Gary DeMar is a very mild-mannered kind of a guy. He sells used books, and um, uh, you wouldn't mind having him over for dinner some night. Um, and then there are others. <laughs> but among those others are two names that I ought to, uh, I ought to uh, tell you about. Greg Bonson. Um, used to teach at Reform Seminary in Jackson many years ago. Now, here's what interests me about theonomy today. The movement is changing. As I read these guys' writings, I see a new kind of sensible, common-sense moderation appearing in such theonomists as Greg Bonson and Gary DeMar and some of the other younger theonomists. There's a degree of common sense and maturity there that didn't always characterize the movement in its beginning stages. You see, what impressed so many what, what impressed so many reformed people at the beginning was a sense of daring, a sense of reckless abandon, a, spence, a sense of radicalness in the early theonomist writings because these guys had a biblical answer for everything 
and those biblical answers usually came from the Pentateuch. Now let me give those early theonomist writings some credit, all right? And here I'm going to I'm going to uncharacteristically criticize myself and some other Christians that I know, most of whom are Baptists. <laughs> Are you ever uncomfortable with the fact that most of us don't give sufficient attention and credit to the Pentateuch? Are you ever uncomfortable with the ease with which we sweep through those books without really studying them? I am. I'm convicted by that. I want to give these guys proper credit. They took the Pentateuch seriously. They may also have taken it wrongly, but they took it seriously. And when they read about what you do when your neighbor accidentally kills your cow, they didn't sweep it under the rug. They started digging there for moral principles that would guide Christians today. They took the Old Testament far more seriously than most of us have. And I say that to my shame and to your shame. More to your shame than mine. But I, I say it to our shame. All right? These are people who approach the Old Testament with far more respect, with far more devotion than most of us have. You and I might pour through the book of Revelation, with all, but these guys were pouring through the Pentateuch, the book of Deuteronomy. Now, here are some of the changes, however, that I see occurring. For one thing, there's a new kind of moderation that's coming to the surface with these with the more with the younger theonomists. For let's take Gary North, for example. Gary North says that homosexuality, witchcraft, adultery, and juvenile delinquents should be capital crimes. Well, we'd have a much smaller <laughs> population on our hands if we did indeed treat those as capital crimes. All right. He's saying that a properly run society, once it has evidence that someone is an adulterer or practices witchcraft or necromancy or whatever, they'll take these people out and they'll execute them and execute them in the specific, by the specific mode prescribed in the Pentateuch. Now here's what Greg Bonson says. He says, wait a minute, Gary. Now I hope, I hope my saying this on tape is not the first time that Gary North has recognized the differences between Greg Bonson and himself. But Greg Bonson says, wait a minute. Who says, for one thing, that we have to execute people in the same way? All right? I mean, we do have other ways of doing it now. What peculiar virtues attach to stoning people to death? Maybe we can use the electric chair or hanging. <laughs> no, no. Well, I'm not through yet. I'm not through. Honestly, what a group of cynics. Let me finish. Look, I'm trying to defend these people, and you cynics. So Bonson says, 
We shouldn't be foolish enough to say that the, the modes of ex execution must be the same. But moreover, here's what Bonson says. He says, Gary, when is America going to be ready to, to execute people for these offenses? Well, the answer is that America isn't going to be ready to do that until America becomes a God-fearing society. If you talk today to Americans about executing homosexuals, you're going to lose all support. All support. If you talk about executing people for adultery, think of the Baptist support you're going to lose. I'm just kidding. You know I'm kidding. I'm just... All right. So, Greg Bonson says, it's stupid for theonomists to give our hand away hundreds of years before America is even ready to listen to this message. We believe that in the long run, America will be converted to the gospel. These guys are post-millennialists. It may take, it's certain, Gary North, this is Bonson speaking, it's certain that none of us will be around. This will not happen in our lifetime. <laughs> I am inclined to agree with that. This will not happen in our children's lifetime. This might take hundreds of years of preaching of the gospel until enough people in America become converted and spirit-filled so that they say, let's have a country that obeys the law of God. So uh, since that will never happen in our lifetime, it is stupid to talk about it in public. Well, I think he's right. I, I sort of resonate with Gary, uh, Greg Bonson here. I think it is stupid to talk about uh, executing people for uh, offenses like this at a time when our society regards such talk as horrific and offensive. So... Greg Bonson is, is trying to introduce a tone of moderation in several ways. He's trying to say, shut up about certain things. You're not helping the cause at all. Keep your, stop talking about those things. Keep your, stop talking about those things. Number two, he's saying, stop insisting on a literal interpretation of those things. I mean, if America should ever become a, a, the kind of society in which adultery and some of these other things do become regarded as capital offenses, then, you know, we need not engage in that kind of barbarous activity necessarily. Now, here's another example of what Greg Bonson is saying. And um, I want to direct your attention to a, a key passage. Well, first of all, I want to draw a distinction between the Greg Bonson of 1977 and the Greg Bonson of today. In 1977, Greg Bonson wrote, Central to the theory and practice of Christian ethics is every jot and tittle of God's law as laid down in the revelation of the Old and New Testaments. The mark of a theonomist is his commitment to carry through on every jot and... See, there was a kind of radical character to the theonomy of 15 years ago. Scripture says it, I believe it, that settles it, 
bring them out and stone them or whatever else. But now the new Greg Bonson says a lot about, well, here's the verse he picks on. Deuteronomy 22.8. This verse has become kind of a symbol in the debate between the new moderate theonomists and the older, more radical theonomists. Here's what Deuteronomy 22.8 refers to. It says that every every Jew should have a railing around his roof. That's Old Testament law. That is Old Testament law that is not rescinded in the New Testament. Now, what would be the difference, I guess, between a more literal theonomist and a more moderate theonomist rendering of that? Well, I suppose Gary North would say, I don't care what kind of a roof you have, put a railing around it. <laughs> Even if you've got a pointed roof, put a railing up there for some reason. Bonson says, that's foolish. Why, did the Jew- Why were the Jews told to put railings around their roofs? Answer, their roofs were flat. Moreover, they did entertaining on their flat roofs. They had cookouts up there. They had barbecues up there. Uh, only with clean animals, of course, no pork. So the reason why a Jew living on a house with a flat roof would put a barricade around his wall was to keep people from falling off the roof and hurting themselves. All right, Bonson says, now what do we do with Deuteronomy 22.8? Well, he says, we don't go out and build barricades around our, our own roofs. That would be silly. No, what we do, now get this, What we do is we think back to the more general principle behind Deuteronomy 22.8. And then we act with that more general principle in view. Does that sound familiar? I think it it should sound like what I've said in this class. In other words... Deuteronomy 22.8 interpreted literally has no relevance to contemporary American society at all. Interpreted literally, it's useless. So we reason our way back to... So what does that lead up to? And here is Bonson's application of the general principle that he deduces from Deuteronomy 22.8 that Christians living in Southern California should build walls around their swimming pools. (laughs) Now, I'm laughing. Um, I know it's hard for the people listening by tape to tell that I'm laughing, but I really am laughing. (laughs) Now, here's the difference between uh, Greg Bonson and me. See, Maybe there's a general principle there. Maybe there isn't. Maybe we ought to just recognize that here is a culture-bound rule that has no more application in our society, and so we shouldn't really get too excited about Deuteronomy 22.8. No, there's still a little bit of the theonomous impulse in Greg Bonson, so what he does is he still wants to get some contemporary application from it, and the best he can think of is build a fence around your swimming pool. Now... Seriously, does any sensible 
Californian with enough money to build a swimming pool need Deuteronomy 22.8 to tell him to build a fence around it? For one thing, if he, if he doesn't do it himself, he's going to be in violation of his own local codes. All right? I mean, there is no community in America that doesn't require swimming pools to be enclosed. I mean, this is a matter of common sense. It's a matter of local codes. It is hardly an application of Deuteronomy 22.8. Now, what I'm trying to get you to see is that there's a, along with this new kind of maturity and moderation on the part of younger theonomists like Greg Bonson and uh, Gary DeMar, there is really a break a radical break from the old theonomist who insisted that for every Old Testament law there are all of these contemporary applications. And Two things are going on. Number one, Greg Bonson is moving in the direction of a more traditional reformed approach to Old Testament law. He's, he's saying practically what I've been saying during this whole period about the difference between principles and rules and the need for application and the avoidance of a silly literal interpretation that leads us to try and get something out of Old Testament laws that really isn't there. So Greg Bonson is moving in the direction, I, th I think, of a more uh, responsible, informed position. Secondly, I think he's breaking He's breaking with what theonomy has always stood for, which is that sense of radicalness, that sense of rigidness. I can't believe that Rusus Rushduni is very happy with what's going on right now. He doesn't talk about it for reasons that I think are largely political. That is, he, he wants to keep his movement together, but I think he must recognize that these younger theonomists are giving away the store that they are really moving in a direction that, it, that, that points to a breakup of the theonomist movement. So, <clears throat> I am not a theonomist. And I think that many of the people who still call themselves theonomists are in fact moving away from that. If I were Greg Bonson, what I'd recognize is that the, the, the stringent features of the old movement perhaps aren't important anymore. What is important is that we, re, is that we continue to be reconstructionists in the sense that we're trying to reconstruct American society and bring it more in line with a biblical model and so on, but that we recognize the need for a sensible hermeneutic that gets us away from this simple-minded, literalistic, interpretation and application of of many Old Testament passages that it seems to me we should recognize just don't have relevance anymore and there's nothing wrong in saying that the preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent to listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.